Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to you. Notice I didn't say happy holidays. This is a woke free zone you've entered into. (laughs) Or else I'd have to say happy Kwanzaa and everything else, you know. Let's take our Bibles uh, this morning and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and verse 1. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is the weirdest church I've ever been to. Nobody teaches out of the book of Revelation on Christmas. But by the time we get finished with this passage today, you'll say, wow, why doesn't everybody teach this on Christmas? Because it reveals Christmas from a different angle than we're used to. It reveals it from the perspective of Satan. And how Satan himself did everything to prevent Christmas from happening. So that's why we have entitled this message, The Christmas That Almost Did Not Happen. And uh, for our candlelighting service, I would encourage you all to come back tonight at 6 p.m. for that. I am going to be teaching, um, not as long as I normally do, but we will be doing a devotional from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. So your assignment is to look this afternoon at Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, and come up with the seven most important words in that verse. Hint, one of them is Bethlehem. (laughs) So now you just have to come up with six more, and I'll share those with you uh, this evening. We can even swap lists and get into a discussion about, I like this one, and no, I like this one, etc. As was read earlier, Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and she cried out being in labor, pain to give birth. And another sign was seen in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns upon his heads, seven diadems and his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, As you come to Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, you see a cast of characters. There's the Son, uh, S-O-N, not to be confused with the Son, S-U-N, in verse 1, but the Son, verse 5, the dragon, uh, verse 3, and then verse 1, there's this woman uh, who is pregnant. And generally speaking, when the Bible communicates it's either communicating one of two ways. It's communicating literally. In other words, you take words at their face value. 
But sometimes the Bible employs symbols or figures of speech. And that's what we're reading here. We're reading about symbols that refer to something. And we know that because of the repetition of the word sign. Uh, It's the Greek word simeon in verse 1 and verse 3. And it's probably an area of the Bible where you have the most intense symbolism uh, as compared to anywhere else in Scripture. And when you come to symbolic language like this, particularly in the book of Revelation, you just have to follow a few rules. And if you follow these rules, you'll be able to identify all these symbols. This is not too difficult to do. It's just a matter of knowing the rules. One rule, first bullet point there, is to search the immediate context. You come to symbols like this, just keep reading the chapter. And the Bible will define itself, it will define the symbol, typically in the same context that you're reading in. Uh, Dr. John Walvoord in his Revelation commentary says the Bible or the book of Revelation does this 26 times. 26 times it will use a symbol and then maybe a verse or two later it will explain what the symbol is. If that doesn't work, then it's just a matter of searching the rest of the Bible. And what I mean by that is the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is very interesting. Uh, There are, I think, 400 and something verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of those 400 and something verses refer to the Old Testament. There are no Old Testament verbatim quotes in the book of Revelation, but about 278 of the verses somehow point back to the Old Testament. And the better you understand the Old Testament, therefore, the better better you'll understand the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation draws heavily from the Old Testament. So with those rules in mind, we can sort of figure out who these three characters are, the sun, the dragon, and the woman. And once we understand who they are, it's it's almost like Satan's playbook is revealed. And you'll see very clearly a theme that's going to go all the way through the Bible where Satan did everything within his power to stop this particular day, Christmas Day, from happening. So who is the son that's mentioned there in verse 5? He's caught up to God and his throne. He will rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. Well, if we know our Old Testament, and if we know Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, and this is a reference back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, we know that the son, S-O-N, is none other than Jesus. And there's another giveaway. It says the son was caught up to God and his throne. And that's a description of what happened to Jesus in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9, where he ascended back to the Father's right hand. So the son, S-O-N, is none other than Jesus. All right, well, what about verse 3? Who's the dragon? And... Again, let's use our rules. 
just keep reading. And if you go down to verse 9, we know exactly who the dragon is. Not a lot of guesswork is required here. It says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. And also jot down Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, same book, because it also identifies who the dragon is. It says, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil. So if the son refers to Jesus, then the dragon would be a reference to Satan. And then you look at verse 1, you see a woman that's pregnant, and she's clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And the Roman Catholic Church will try to tell you that that's the Virgin Mary. Uh, as you'll see in a minute, this is, this is not the Virgin Mary. This is none other than the nation of Israel, pregnant with her Messiah, as her Messiah is coming forth from the nation of Israel into our world. And we can see that because we're just using our rules. Let's go into the Old Testament to identify this imagery. Sun, moon, 12 stars. We're actually very close to this chapter, believe it or not, in our verse-by-verse study Sunday mornings through the book of Genesis. So we'll be hitting this very quickly in coming weeks. But Joseph, as a 17-year-old, had a dream. And he narrated this dream to his mother and father. It says in Genesis 37, verse 9, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, look at the imagery. Sun, in this case it's S-U-N, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. That's the identical imagery that we read about in Revelation 12, verse 1. Sun, moon, 12 stars. And it essentially is a vision that God gave to Joseph when he was 17 about how he would be one day elevated to second in command over all of the land of Egypt. And that was a vision that he received from God that was not fulfilled in his life for another 13 years until he reached age 30. And he's sharing this with his family, and he thinks his family is going to say, Yay, we're so proud of you. But they become jealous on account of this vision. It says he related it to his father, that would be Jacob, and his brothers, 11 of them, Joseph being the 12th. And his father, that's Jacob, rebuked him and said, what is this dream you have had, you you, you stupid 17-year-old? That that part I added, by the way. Shall and, and in the process of the rebuke, Jacob defines who the sun and the moon and the 12 stars are. Shall I, that's the sun, and your mother, that's the moon, And your brothers, that's the 11 stars, Joseph being the 12th, because we call these 12 Jacob's dozen. And through Jacob's dozen, these 12 sons came Israel's 12 tribes. 
Shall I and your mother and your father and your brothers actually come down and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? So the sun, obviously, is Jacob. The moon is Leah, Jacob's other wife, because Rachel has already died in Genesis 35. The 11 stars would represent Joseph's brother. The 12th star that they're all bowing down to would represent Joseph. And so the 12 stars represent Israel's 12 tribes. So the sun is the patriarch of Israel, the moon is the matriarch of Israel, and the 11 or 12 stars, I should say, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So this imagery is created by the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis to represent the nation of Israel. So with all of that being said, by just applying some simple rules, we can understand who all of these characters are. The the sun, S-O-N, is Jesus. The dragon is the devil. And then this woman pregnant with the Messiah is none other than the nation of Israel. And so what we see here in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, is the intense spiritual warfare that was transpiring when Jesus, 2,000 years ago, through the nation of Israel, was born into our world. Now, do you all believe in spiritual warfare? You should, because the Bible talks about it from cover to cover. I wish we had time to look up every verse here, but if you were to simply study these in the Scripture you would see the reality of spiritual warfare. Not the least of which is the last one on the list, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, which says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark world. There are dark spiritual forces at work under Satan's authority and control that constantly exert pressure in our natural world and consequently many of the things happening in our natural world can be explained in terms of this reality of spiritual warfare. Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 through 5 is unique because it's describing the spiritual warfare that was transpiring when Jesus was born into our world on Christmas. The bottom line is ever since the fall of man, Satan has become the ruler of this world. Uh, Countless scriptures teach this. It's not something you have to like, (laughs) uh, but it's a reality. Satan is the ruler of this present world system, and that's not going to be corrected until Jesus comes back the second time. Uh, Here are some titles that are used of Satan in the Scripture. And you'll find there in the right-hand column there some parentheses where you can locate all of these in the Bible. He is called in the Bible the prince of this world. He is called the god of this age. He is called the prince and power of the air. Uh, He is the one that the believer wrestles with. He is the one that roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then at the very bottom of the screen, 
1 John chapter 5 verse 19 indicates that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Satan illegitimately assumed authority over planet Earth because of our forebears and their sin in Eden. Essentially what Adam and Eve did is they gave Satan the keys to the present world. That was never God's intention, but that is the reality as a consequence of the fall of man. And I'll tell you this much about Satan is he likes his position. He does not want to yield it. He does not want to give it up. And if you come and you try to take it away from him, from him, he will fight you uh, tooth and claw to hold on to what he has. And when Jesus, the king, the king of the Jews, and ultimately the ruler of this world, was born into this world, Satan did not like that at all. And he worked in history to stop it from happening. Because you have to understand the mind of Satan to understand this passage and to understand Christmas. We know that Satan has schemes. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul the Apostle says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. A scheme is a strategy. And what you're seeing right here in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, is was his primary strategy that didn't work. And the fact that it didn't work is evidenced by the fact that Jesus actually was born into our world 2,000 years ago. And that essentially is what we're celebrating at Christmas. We're celebrating a satanic strategy that God supernaturally intervened in to stop this satanic strategy from transpiring. But make no mistake about it, Satan is a schemer. He has strategies, he has plans, he has uh, devices. And in his very sick and twisted and darkened mind, he believes that he can stop God's prophecies from transpiring. It makes no logical sense, but that's what he thinks. Uh, the book of Ezekiel, which I think here is a reference to Satan, says this in Ezekiel 28, verse 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. His, his mind was darkened when he fell and is not working rationally or logically. Th- this is a being that felt or thought he could overthrow God. Now, how smart is that? I mean, how exactly do you overthrow God? Logically, you can't do it, but he thinks he can. On account of the beauty that he was given by God when he was brought forth as a beautiful, high-ranking, angelic being, being one of the cherubim. And so when you come to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, and we've read through that whole paragraph, and you just look at verse 4 you'll see the spiritual darkness that he was exerting 
to prevent Jesus from coming into the world. It says the dragon, who's the dragon? The devil. Stood before the woman, the pregnant woman, who's the woman? Israel. That was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Who is the child? The child is Jesus. And what this is revealing is Satan did everything within his power. He did everything within his authority to stop the birth of Jesus Christ as Jesus was born through the nation of Israel into our world. It is a part of the Christmas message that for whatever reason never gets talked about. Matthew chapter 2, that's the part of it we like. We're comfortable there. I mean, pastor, keep me in Matthew 2. Don't bring me to Revelation 12. I mean, I brought brought friends and family to the service. I mean, what are they going to think? Just give us the nice, normal Christmas message. And that's important. But Matthew 2, you know, early Luke, the only thing that's going to reveal to you is the story from the human perspective. If you want to understand what was happening behind the scenes from the demonic perspective... From the satanic perspective, from the perspective of the spiritual world, you have to understand the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 12 and verses 1 through 5. Satan did not like the birth of Jesus. He enjoys his authority too much. No ruler is coming into this world to usurp me. So I'm going to stop the birth of Jesus is essentially what's happening here. Matthew and Luke won't tell you that. But John in the book of Revelation, who could see the invisible spiritual realm, reveals this side of it. All of this is an outworking of Genesis 3 verse 15, the very first messianic prophecy given in the scripture, where God announced after the fall of man, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a messianic prophecy. This is the first messianic prophecy given in the entire Bible. How do we know that? Because Genesis 3 is followed by Genesis 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, you have the birth of Cain that his mama, Eve, thought was the Messiah. Notice Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. If you're reading this from the New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that the help of, or with the help of, is in italics. Meaning it was supplied by the translator. And most of the time the translators do a great job. But here is an area where I think translators have obscured the meaning of the passage. It says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Now the man, that's Adam, had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have begotten a man-child, skip the italics, I have begotten a man-child, the Lord. She felt that she had given birth to the Messiah. And you talk about parental disappointment. Cain was no Messiah. He ended up being a murderer. 
But in her mind, she believed that she had given birth to the Messiah because she was there in Eden when Genesis 3, verse 15 was spoken. There's coming one from the seed of the woman, Eve, who will take the serpent's or Satan's head and crush it. And then over in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, this is what Noah's daddy said when Noah was born. The father's name was Lamech. And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, it says he called his name Noah, saying, This one, Noah, will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. In other words, Noah, when Noah was born, his father Lamech was saying, you know, Noah is the Messiah. He's going to reverse the curse. And God used Noah strategically in the Bible, as we'll talk about in a minute, but he was no Messiah. I mean, I don't think a Messiah would go and get drunk. That's what Noah did in Genesis chapter 9. And so what you see in Genesis 3 verse 15 is a conflict that will take place. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The moment our forebears fell into sin is the moment God put his messianic program into motion and he said there's coming one from the seed of the woman, Eve, a Messiah who is going to take your head, Satan, and crush it. Now, along the way, you're going to be able to do a lot of damage. You're going to bruise the heel over and over again in your attempt to stop this prophecy from happening. But rest assured, when it's all said and done, is the Messiah will be born and your head will be crushed. And as Satan, who also was in Eden when this prophecy was given, in his twisted mind, in his sick, darkened mind, says, you know what, I'm the ruler of this world now and I'm going to work in history to prevent the fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15. And that, brothers and sisters, if you can understand that, is the storyline of the whole Bible. It is a war, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent conflict, as it is called. And it is a a pattern which recycles over and over again in the Bible where Satan is at work trying to shut down the messianic lineage leading to Jesus. And it looks several times very, very dark as if Satan is winning. But as you're going to see, God is going to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and preserve the messianic line so that Jesus could come into our world. And this pattern is going to happen in the Bible by my count at least seven times. If you understand the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent conflict, and you can understand this spiritual warfare, all of these biblical stories will start to fit into place for you because they're all an amplification of what God said would happen in Genesis 3, verse 15. So what I'm going to do with the remainder of my time is I'm going to talk you through all seven. And don't panic. I think I can do this sort of fast. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? 
Well, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And at that point, Satan reasoned, aha, the Messiah is not going to come through Cain's line. It's going to come through Abel's line. And so consequently, Satan says, I'm going to shut this down right here and now, and I'm going to have Cain murder Abel. Now, Genesis 4 doesn't say it quite like I said it, but when you factor in 1 John 3, verse 12, you clearly see that Satan was involved in the mind of Cain leading to the first murder in human history. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Satan inspired Cain, motivated Cain, used Cain's unforgiving spirit to commit the first murder in human history, the murder of Abel. And it's at that point that it looks like, oh my, oh my, it looks like the messianic line has been shut down. We're not going to have a messiah. But God, as he does, snatches victory from the jaws of defeat and allows Seth to be born at the end of Genesis 4. And the messianic line now continues through Seth. By the way, the name Seth in Hebrew means substituted. God used Seth as a substitute for Abel to make sure that messianic line remains intact. And so that's round one of seven in this seed of the woman, seed of the serpent conflict. Things look dark, but God gets around it through the birth of Seth. Round two is in Genesis 6. Now, if you're here visiting for the first time, I apologize in advance what I'm about to say because you're going to have almost no framework for grasping this if you haven't been with us in our verse-by-verse teaching. But I'm going to say it anyway. It has to do with something that happened in Genesis 6 related to the sons of God and the daughters of men. The prophecy indicates that when the Messiah comes, he will be the seed of the woman. Now, who's the woman? The woman is Eve. In other words, this Messiah is going to come forth from Eve. This Messiah must be of human origin. And that's our our doctrine of Jesus. He, he, He is at the point of the virgin conception, fully God, And what was added to eternally existent deity was humanity. He must be fully God and fully man. Now, this prophecy of him being fully man is evident in Genesis 3, verse 15, because Eve, he's coming from your seed. So what does Satan do? He says, I'm going to shut this whole thing down right now. And I'm going to create a race of people, watch this, that aren't fully human. Because if you create a race of people that aren't fully human, partly human, partly angelic, they can't fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah coming from Eve's seed. 
being fully man. And that becomes the explanation for Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, right before the flood. It says it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, that daughters were born to them, and the sons of God, those are fallen angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, who would those be? The product of this unholy union between demons, fallen angels, and human women. Satan had some of his demons begin to procreate with human women to create a race of people called the Nephilim, which simply means fallen ones, to tamper so much with the genetics of the human race so that a Messiah can never come from the human race because we know that the Messiah must be fully man. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And that is the significance of Noah. Genesis 6 verses 8 and 9 being called a righteous and blameless man. Now, blameless, righteous. It doesn't just say righteous, it says blameless. It doesn't just say blameless, it says righteous. Was Noah a perfectly righteous man? No. As I mentioned before, he was the one that was intoxicated in the post-flood world. So, so what does it mean when it says he was righteous and blameless? When you take that second word, blameless, in Hebrew... And you track it through Torah, you'll notice that it's used of something that is genetically uncontaminated. It's used of the Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, verse 5, by Moses, the same author, he writes, Your lamb shall be unblemished, male a year old, you may take it from the sheep and from the goats. The Passover lamb has to be genetically pure. And so when your Bible says Noah was righteous and blameless in his days and his generations, and you track that word blameless through Hebrew Bible, particularly the writings of Moses, what you'll discover is Noah was different because he was genetically pure. In other words, he was uncontaminated by this satanic attempt to to mix the genetics of the human race so that the Messiah could never be born. Satan, with his demons, the sons of God, cohabitating with human women, creating the Nephilim, had so genetically tampered the human race, with the human race it looked like a Messiah who must be fully man could never be born. But God snatched victory from the jaws of defeat and preserved Noah and his family, Noah and Mrs. Noah, Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. The most important one is Shem, because the Messiah, Genesis 9, verse 26, is going to come through Shem's line. He genetically protected them in the ark 
so that there was somebody on the earth that would be qualified to bring forth a Messiah who must be fully man. Now, I understand that this is like, when you hear this for the first time, it's like science fiction. And what you'll discover is there's two major views on Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. There's the view that I'm giving, the angelic interpretation. And then there's the view that this is just the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain intermarrying. Bible commentators, as you can see, from this chart, are very evenly divided on this subject. However, I would call to your attention the expression sons of God. The expression is Bani Elohim, sons of God. That expression is only used five times in the Old Testament, twice here in Genesis 6, but three other times in the book of Job. By the way, what's the oldest book of the Bible? The book of Job. So when Moses sat down to write the Pentateuch, the only book that he had on record at that time was the book of Job. And only the book of Job uses this expression, Bani Elohim, and there are the references there on the screen. Job says it always means angels. And by the way, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a lot of the Septuagint translators were so confident of this interpretation that I'm giving that instead of sons of God, they just wrote the the Greek word angels into the text. But it would explain a lot. It would explain where the Nephilim came from. It would explain the emphasis on Noah's perfection. It would explain the total wickedness of the pre-flood world and it would explain the necessity of the flood i mean bringing a global flood why why would god do something that unprecedented because satan was doing something unprecedented he was tampering with the genetics of the human race so that a messiah could never be born And they were known as the Nephilim, and God brought the global flood to purge the earth of the Nephilim, this genetic experiment that Satan was running in Genesis chapter 6. This is why when you get into the New Testament, there are three references to this. 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, Jude verses 6 and 7. It talks there about demons in a state of incarceration, always connected to the days of Noah. Now, why is that? These demons left their natural abode and they invaded the human realm in a way that was unprecedented. And the demons involved in that particular sin, God immediately took them and jailed them in a place called the abyss Tartarus, etc. And they're going to be jailed there until the fifth bowl, uh, excuse me, the fifth trumpet judgment when demons, Revelation 9 verses 1 through 12, are going to be released from the earth and torture people on the earth during the days of the tribulation period for a time period of five months. Now where do these incarcerated demons 
come from that are going to be released to do this horrific thing to the human race in the days of the coming great tribulation period. The only explanation you have for it is an angelic, demonic interpretation of Genesis 6. There are myriads of angels. A third of them fell with Satan. The ones that got involved in this genetic experiment, they are in a place of incarceration. The demons that were not involved in this genetic experiment are free as we speak, and they are the ones that we wrestle with. You cannot put this information together unless you have an angelic understanding of Genesis chapter 6. By the way, this interpretation that I'm giving is the ancient interpretation of Judaism. It's the ancient interpretation of Christianity. And the other view, the Seth Cain view, didn't originate in the church, according to Renald Showers, until 400 years after the time of Christ. Oh, come on, Pastor. We know from the Bible that angels don't marry. Well, that's a statement about the good angels. I'm not talking here about the good angels. I'm talking here about some of the wicked angels. Oh, come on, pastor. We all know that angels are spirits. And how could a spirit have a sexual relationship with a human woman? Well, angels are spirits. But doesn't the book of Hebrews say some of you have entertained angels? What? Unaware. Apparently they are spirits, but they can take on human form. That's what Satan did with some of his demons. He says, take on human form, cohabitate, procreate with human women, create a mixed hybrid race, partly you, partly angel, and partly human, and we can stop Genesis 3 verse 15 dead in its tracks. And so some of the demons did what Satan said. And God said, enough of that. God snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. He genetically protected Noah in the ark. And he took those demons involved in that heinous genetic experiment and he put them in a place called the abyss, not to be heard from again until trumpet judgment number five. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. You see, the whole Genesis 6 issue is just round two in the conflict. It's Satan trying to prevent Christmas from happening. It's just in Genesis 6, Satan used a different strategy. Genetic manipulation. Genetic tampering. And at the darkest point, which is what always happens in Scripture, just when you think it's over... God snatches victory from the jaws of defeat and works in a way where the line can be preserved leading to Jesus Christ and his birth on Christmas. And then came round three. Round three is described in Exodus chapter one. And by this time in biblical history, we know that the Messiah, when he comes, must be a man, must be Semitic. And there are the verses in parenthesis that you can look up on your own. He must come from Abraham's line. He must come from Isaac's line. He must come from Jacob's line. In other words, the Messiah has to be a Hebrew. 
He has to be Jewish. He has to come from the nation of Israel, the the woman that's pregnant in Revelation 12. The Messiah must come from her. We know this because Numbers 24, verse 17. This was Balak, who was hired, excuse me, Balaam, hired by Balak to curse Israel in the Old Testament. But every time Balaam opened his mouth, he blessed Israel. And he had seven oracles there in Numbers 23 and 24 concerning the nation of Israel. And his fourth oracle, which I have on the screen here, is where he saw a Messiah coming forth, not from the Egyptians or the Moabites or the Phoenicians, but from Israel. And he says in this oracle, I see him now, I behold him now, but not near a star, a star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel and he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. That's why on all your Christmas cards, Matthew 2 verse 2 is found of these wise men coming from Babylon, which by the way is where Balaam had this prophecy. He was from Mesopotamia, the Babylonian area. Following a star. Why are these wise men coming from Babylon following a star? They had access to Balaam's prophecy and they knew that a Messiah was coming forth from Israel. Because that's what Balaam's prophecy says. And it will be associated with an abnormal appearance of a star in the sky. And so here are these three wise men. I don't know if there was three, but whatever the issue was, there was a handful of them. And they're seeking God based on what limited knowledge that they had. And yet here's the Jewish nation with a full Old Testament and didn't understand the messianic time period that they were living in. But that's why these men are following this Star, And so it's very clear at this particular point that the Messiah must come through the nation of Israel. And so now we enter into the next round of the conflict, round three, where Satan says, I will prevent that from happening. I will take the entire nation of Israel and I will put it into bondage for 400 years. And in fact, I will create a program whereby the Jewish male infants will be drowned in the Nile. Who caused that genocide from taking place? It was Satan, and he was simply trying to, like he's done in prior ages, prevent the birth of Jesus, shut down the lineage leading to Jesus. That's what God said would happen all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's just now we're in round three, and you're seeing a different manifestation of it. And so what does God do? He snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. He allows Moses to be set adrift on the Nile. And you know the story of the book of Exodus, how baby Moses in this basket just happened to come across uh, Pharaoh's daughter 
And she took him in and gave him one of the greatest educations and privileges a human being could have because God had a purpose for Moses to get Israel out of these 400 years of bondage. So you see the same pattern? Satan attacks. God works just at the darkest point. God works behind the scenes. He snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. He works sovereignly through Moses. And the nation of Israel is eventually released from 400 years of bondage. And then we come to round four. And this is in Second Chronicles 22 and 23. And if you ever want to study a section of the Bible where Satan almost pulled it off. It's these chapters. Second Chronicles chapters 22 and 23. And, and by this time in biblical history, we have prophecies to the extent of the tribe that Jesus is going to come from. We know he must be a man. We know he must be Semitic. We know he must come from Abraham's line, from Isaac's line, from Jacob's line. He's got to be Jewish. But now we have information, Genesis 49, verse 10, that he must come from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, that's the Messiah, comes... And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. John the revelator is told to stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome to open the book and its seals. The Messiah is not going to come through the lineage of Dan. He's not going to come through the lineage of Naphtali. He's not going to come through the lineage of Levi. He's not going to come through um, Reuben. You would think it would be Reuben because he's the firstborn. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. That's where he's going to come from. So Satan, understanding prophecy, says, you know what? I'll stop this from happening. Well, how are you going to do that, Satan? I'm going to kill all of the males in the tribe of Judah. And that is what is happening in Second Chronicles chapters 22 and 23. Because there came a very wicked ruler, a queen, a usurper. Someone who should not have been on the throne at all. She was illegitimate. She grabbed power. Her name is Athaliah. And she began to, and watch this language very carefully, exterminate genocide. All of the royal offspring of the tribe of Judah. She's not trying to wipe out all, any of these other tribes. She's trying to wipe out Judah. And I'm telling you, folks, as you, as you read that story, Satan was in one millimeter of winning because all of the children born from Judah, all of the royal offspring from the house of Judah were, were killed. Except for one little baby whose name was Joash. 
And Joash came under the protective custody of a priest named Jehoiada. Jehoiada took baby Joash and hid him in the temple during Athaliah's rampage. And now you have a situation on planet Earth where there's one remaining descendant from Judah. And once Athaliah had died, Jehoiada took Joash, who was older now, out of the temple, and the Messianic line continued. You see the same pattern? At the darkest time in history, God snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. The times change, the the players change, but the strategy is the same. And then we come to round number five uh, in this conflict. And this takes us into the Persian time period, the book of Esther. By this time, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah in particular, had been taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And then the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. Read Daniel 5 and you'll see that political sea change happening, the handwriting on the wall chapter. And once the Persians came to power, they had more of a tolerant policy towards the Jewish people. Some of them, you know, began to trickle back into the promised land. You can see that in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, etc. But most of them stayed behind in Persia. And this then takes us to the book of Esther, which is now center stage. And I won't give you the whole story of the book of Esther. You you probably know it very well. But Haman developed a plan to exterminate the Jewish people because he didn't like the fact that these people are monotheistic and they won't bow down to me. That's what kind of a twisted person Haman was. And it was marked to the exact day when the Persian Empire would eradicate the Jewish nation still living in Persia. And most people believe that through that policy, they would have gone into the land of Israel and destroyed the returnees as well, who were trickling back into the land of Israel at that time. And so things look extremely dark. But God, as he does, always snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. See, if when things go go bleak, in the United States, for example, or in your personal life, don't uh, become despondent over that. That's the time when God does his greatest work. He, he's working on things and people that we don't even know about so that his final plan can be accomplished. But when things look the bleakest and it looks like it is inevitable that the Jewish people are going to be destroyed because in the Laws of the Persians, Esther 8, verse 8, once a law is in place, it can't be taken back. It's irrevocable. The irrevocable destruction of the Jewish nation 
And yet God snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. He is at work in the book of Esther behind the scenes through Mordecai and Esther. And how it all ends is Haman is hung on the very gallows that he had intended for Mordecai. And so profound was this deliverance that a holiday was added to the Jewish calendar. Here are the seven feast days that Israel was to commemorate going all the way back to the time of Moses. Here's what they look like in terms of when they occur on a calendar. Four spring feasts and three fall feasts. And what God did in the book of Esther to deliver the Jewish people from the diabolical plan of Haman was so um, monumental that the Jewish people added another holiday to the list of seven called what? Called Purim. Typically celebrated around our Gentile February and March. I'll tell you something about God's work with the Jewish people. Whenever there is a plan to eradicate the Jewish people, not only do the Jewish people get delivered, but they actually get like a holiday out of the whole thing. And this is how Purim, much later in time, is added to the calendar. Speaking of a holiday and deliverance, this takes us to number six, round six in the battle. By the way, this one, number six, was actually predicted by the prophet Daniel 400 years in advance in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 31. You'll see it. This is something that happened in the intertestamental time period. The time period between the Testaments. The book of Malachi is finished, ending Old Testament revelation. The book of Matthew was yet to be written, beginning New Testament revelation. And there's 400 years there that we really have no knowledge of from the Bible other than Daniel's prophecies. But here's what happened. There arose a very wicked leader named Antiochus IV. He began to tell the Jewish people, you can't have circumcision. You can't have your prayer books anymore. He began to persecute them. He began to kill many of them. He actually set up a pagan image in the rebuilt Jewish temple at that time of Zeus. And it's dark. Um, But what does God do? He snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. He raises up something called the Maccabean Revolt through a man named Judas Maccabeus named the Hammer. And they waged guerrilla warfare these Maccabeans, against this evil, wicked, Seleucid ruler named Antiochus IV. And nobody would ever bet that they would win, but they won. They liberated the temple from Seleucid rule, from Antiochus's rule. They took their menorah, and you can see a picture of it there on the right, which according to Jewish tradition must burn eight days 
to liberate the temple area. There was only oil for one day, and yet it miraculously burned eight days. And this took place approximately December the 25th, 164 B.C. The temple is liberated and rededicated. Daniel predicted it would happen, but historically we have to consult the Maccabees books to read how it happened. The Maccabees books are interesting. We as Protestants do not accept them as inspired, but they do contain valid history in them in them, showing us how Daniel's prophecies were fulfilled. And there, along with Jewish tradition, you'll discover the miracle of the lamp oil. And there's a whole feast in Judaism that comes out of this victory, God snatching victory from the jaws of defeat called what? Hanukkah. Sometimes known as Feast of Dedication, Festival of Lights. It's interesting that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ at the exact general time period. It's a Jewish holiday that Jesus himself attended, Hanukkah. You'll find that in John 10, 22. It says, At the time of the feast of, uh, the, feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, It was winter, right? Look at our calendar here. Roughly December. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple area. Well, Jesus, what are you doing in the temple area at that time of the year? Well, it's Hanukkah. I'm doing what all the Jews do. I'm going to Jerusalem to celebrate because of what God did in the intertestamental time period to liberate us from the wicked rulership of Antiochus IV. And just like Purim was added to the calendar to commemorate what God did in the book of Esther, Hanukkah is added to the calendar. So now we have not just seven feasts, but nine, seven Levitical feasts, two added later, Purim, meaning lots, because Haman, by lot, determined the day of Israel's eradication. So the feast that came out of that is called Purim, or lots. And so now we have eight feasts, and because of what God did through Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean Revolt, we're going to add another feast day there called Hanukkah, which means dedication. Why is it called dedication? Because they took the temple out of Antiochus's authority and they rededicated it to God. Well, why is it called the Feast of Lights? Because that menorah was only supposed to burn one day, and it burned eight. God did a work. God did a miracle. And this miracle is so profound that we need to have a celebration. But that's simply round six in this conflict. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, conflict. You say, well, pastor, great historical information. I thought it was Christmas. Can you bring us up to speed on Christmas? Well, I'm glad you asked because that takes us finally to round seven. 
Matthew 2 is giving you the Christmas story from the human perspective. Revelation 12 verses 1 through 5 is giving you the story from the spiritual perspective when Jesus was born into the world. And Revelation 12 verse 4 then is the key verse. It says the dragon, who's the dragon? The devil. Stood before the woman, who's the woman? Israel. That was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Who was the child? Jesus Christ. And this is where you learn in Matthew chapter 2 how Herod, when the wise men came from Babylon and they began talking about the king of the Jews, Herod was bothered by that. What do you mean king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. So, and you know the story from Matthew 2, he inquired of his wise men, where is this Messiah going to be born? They all quoted Micah 5 verse 2, the verse we're going to look at tonight, which pinpoints the exact birthplace of the Messiah. And Herod said, all right, guys, everybody on my side, get in there and I want you to kill all of those innocent male infants in Bethlehem, which is almost identical to what Pharaoh did with the Jewish infants in Egypt, drowning them in the Nile. And the same wicked demonic force that was motivating Pharaoh in the book of Egypt is now motivating Herod. How do I know that? Because Revelation 12 verse 4 tells me that. It says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. See, Matthew 2 just sort of gives you the story from the perspective of Herod being insecure over his own throne. But really, it was the devil himself using Herod's insecurity because Satan is insecure over his own throne. And he did not want this Messiah to be born. In his darkened mind, he actually believes he can stop prophecy from transpiring. So let's take all of these babies in Bethlehem and let's start putting them to death. You read about it in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the Magi came from the east and arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star in the east. And we've come to worship him. Why are you following a star? Balaam's prophecy. Numbers 24 verse 17. Matthew 2 verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled. Matthew 2, verses 4 through 6. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, which we're going to look at tonight. Micah 5, verse 2. Seven words you're supposed to find here in Micah 5, verse 2. Actually, six, because I gave one away. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are no, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew 2, verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time 
the star appeared. Matthew 2, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, and you know the story, he became very enraged and sent men and killed all of the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were two years old or under according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Herod did something terrible here, Matthew tells us. And John says, you really want to know what was happening? Let me give you the other side of the story. Let let me explain to you the Christmas story from the angelic perspective. It was the devil himself using Herod's insecurity to prevent the birth of the Messiah. Why wouldn't Satan do it again when he's done it so many times in biblical history? So Christmas is just round seven of an ancient conflict. And what does God do? He snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. It looks like it's the darkest time. And that's where God has the royal family flee to Egypt. And there the royal family, Jesus and his parents, stay in Egypt until Herod is dead. And then they go back into the land of Israel. And God protected the Messiah. Just like he hid baby Joash in the temple until Athaliah died. And then he came out of the temple. Essentially the same thing here is happening in Matthew 2. Let's, let's get the people out of the royal family, out of Israel until Herod is dead because ultimately Satan is trying to prevent the birth of Jesus. So an ancient conflict spelled out in Genesis 3 verse 15, which goes through seven rounds. By the time you get to the Christmas story, you're just in round seven. The players change, the people change, the time period changes, but it's the same conflict. Started with Cain and Abel, then it moved into the sons of God, then it moved into Pharaoh persecuting Israel, then it moved into Joash being protected from Athaliah, then it moved into Haman persecuting Israel and Esther, then it moved into the intertestamental time period under Antiochus IV, and now it just shows up on Christmas 2,000 years ago with Herod persecuting those in Bethlehem, killing them, genocide, so that the Messiah could not be born. Do you see what God did to get Jesus to us? I mean, God, over and over and over and over again, when it's when humanity is at its darkest point, somehow reaches down and pulls off a rescue operation. Why would God do this seven times? Answer, he loves you that much. When he did all of these rescue operations, he he had you in his thoughts and wanted you to be the recipient of the grace of God, which is only offered in Jesus Christ. So when you turn Jesus Christ down, in essence, what we're doing is we're rejecting The hand of Almighty God that worked in history constantly 
snatching victory from the jaws of defeat to get to Jesus to us. What is the Christmas message? Satan is everywhere. Blood is everywhere. Genocide is everywhere. And yet, God is there. And somehow He superintended and protected and rescued and snatched victory from seeming defeat over and over again because that's how bad God wants a relationship with people who can't come into a relationship with Him without the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So with all of that being said, that's the Christmas message. And you hear all that and you say, well, of course, Revelation 12 verses 1 through 5 should be taught from every pulpit in every church. It's not weird at all. It, <laughs> it unlocks the meaning of the Bible for us. And so since God worked so consistently to get Jesus to us on Christmas morning, our exhortation is to receive what Jesus has done for us because that little baby would grow up and accomplish his mission that Satan was trying to stop. His mission is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And his final words on the cross were, it is finished. Meaning, he's done all the work. All you have to do is receive what he's done as a gift. Just receive it by faith and it's yours. And so if the Holy Spirit is in any way convicting anyone within the sound of my voice, either here in the building, watching or listening online, watching or listening after the fact, our exhortation is to not just sit on the information, but to allow the information to lead to transformation. And the transformation in a person's life begins when they receive as a gift by faith what Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago. Faith is another way of saying dependence or reliance. I'm no longer depending upon my good works to make me right before God. I'm depending upon the good work that Jesus did for me 2,000 years ago. And I appreciate it because I can read the Bible and I can see everything God did to get Jesus to, to me, get Jesus to you. Receiving Jesus Christ as one Savior is not a matter of joining a church, walking an aisle, giving money. It's a matter of privacy between them and the Lord where the Spirit convicts them and they respond to that convicting ministry by trusting in Christ alone. I would hope and pray that many people are now doing that as I'm, I'm speaking If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this rich, rich biblical history. We're grateful for the love that you have for us in providing for us this final victory that hell itself tried to stop. But you worked mightily because you love us that much. Thank you for what you've done for us. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.